0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in, because the runout starts now. Chris, it's not safe for us to go out in public anymore. I know. I thought this was just going to be a hobby, but now it's just consumed our lives. And, uh, I mean, we are just simple climbers who want to go climbing without being harassed, stalked, violated. Um, you know, we just, I i just wish wish to, to be left in peace when I'm in the public.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've we reached a, cele- a point of celebrity in our podcasting career that we're just being recognized everywhere we go and it's getting to be difficult. I mean, I think that we might need to uh, put some podcast funds toward bodyguards.
0: Bodyguards, um, I also think I need to, you know, have some sort of um, fashion coordinator so I don't leave the house like, you know, (laughs) those shots of people in their like workout clothes that get thrown around, you know, like Margot Robbie in her like sweats, although she looks good in her sweats too. But, you know, I got to make sure I leave the house full makeup, my eyeliner, the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I I I'm seriously reconsidering my athleisure schlumpy, sweatpant outfit that um <laughs> I normally just employ to uh spark creativity and joy in my in my writing and podcasting creative process, but um it's not suited for the the kind of, you know, public fare and consumption and media attention that we're getting because there's just paparazzi
0: everywhere we go. Everywhere, almost everywhere, at least at City Market in Moab, Utah, where we were, <laughs> w- again, where we were, were harassed, where our our rights as humans were trampled upon. It's like a sign of the times that uh, this kind of violation can just happen anywhere you go, whatever happens. And it, it must stop now. My yeah. existence hangs in the balance at this point.
1: I mean, how are we going to go on with our lives knowing that at any point we could just be memed?
0: memed like memed i mean that's so degrading it's so degrading so degrading but this is what happened this is what happened is we were photographed quietly shopping for i think i got some prosciutto um (laughs) a wedge of cheese um some chips what else you know just some snacks to go to the crag with We
1: have this history of, uh, before heading out to the desert, of just loading up on just horrendous junk food that is Mm -hmm. no good for us to eat. And and it's kind of our our little dirty secret that, (laughs) you know, we want to eat some junk food in in private, but now we're getting caught on camera shopping for junk food. Yeah, well... um,
0: I think it's more me than you, but um, as far as that junk food is concerned, because I'm still eating it, it's still here. I, I'm the one who ended up with that bag of unconsumed junk food, and I've been just munching on it ever since I got back. But uh, but yeah, no. Joking aside, we were we were photographed and memed, and it was actually quite hilarious. I thought it was a it was a a poignant comment, um, which I had actually been thinking about that the they actually the, the cool thing about like good good satire is that it does make you think about like your actions Mm -hmm. and um you know a good meme is is what that's all about and it said something about our you know prepare for your the drama at your local crag to be dissected in minute i can't remember what it said what did it say
1: something like that it doesn't matter we were we but it was just quite unnerving um i think for us (laughs) To wake up, oh, and you followed this account. This uh, it's called Memes of Moab.
0: Yeah, and but Memes is M E N E M E A N S. Yeah, because there is a Memes of Moab also, and it's it doesn't have much going on over there. Okay, properly well, spelled.
1: Well, we we were um we were spotted in the city market in Moab, and um, by whoever is running Memes of Moab, um, or friend of, friend of, yeah, or friend of Memes of Moab, and and they took a really grainy and shitty photo of us and it was quite unnerving to sort of wake up the next morning to see this on on the instagram feed Um it's yeah, funny <laughs> and uh, just kind of be on un, un, unprepared for uh this kind of this kind of new introduction of celebrity into our lives
0: yeah i i, I mean pa- part of it is that i don't know who it is and mm-hmm. um I, I mean i have my suspicions at least the the group from which it, which it emanates emanates yeah, I was sort of shocked, but then I thought it was funny because then I started thinking about the fact that, that this person probably had to kind of like go up a few aisles ahead to like position themselves to take a picture of us um, from, you know, a clandestine spot where we wouldn't have noticed. But also like, I mean, it was real like paparazzi style. It's pretty funny. Yeah. And then, <laughs> but then also the comment made me think because I've been thinking about our, um, our Shelf Road episode from some time back. Um, where I did just that just what they accused me of yeah. and ever since I dissected that scene I realized that I had made myself you know conspicuous for just that and I was wondering if it would change people's behavior around me when we're when I'm just out casually climbing because if you'd listen to that episode you probably were like well he's gonna judge me and watch me and you know or maybe I'll be a bigger asshole just to like get a comment on, on his podcast. So that's why I thought like, I, I actually thought about it all day. The, um the comment, cause I'd already been thinking about it, which is like I said, that's pretty good, you know, smart satire to hit you with something besides like, Ooh, this guy's an asshole or whatever, you know?
1: And you, you've always kind of noted this, that in that corner of the world, do you kind of get recognized more than any other place that you go?
0: Um, yeah. Those are my peeps down yeah. there in Moab and, and, you know and i made i made some comment on there about how um i joked because because they commented that we we seem to know our way around the city market better than your average like dumbo tourist which i retorted with a comment of like yeah i'm kind of a newbie i've only been climbing there since 1991 (laughs) um which i'm pretty certain is probably before this person whoever runs that account was born right um i'm guessing but i'm it's a yeah. pretty, pretty safe bet. <laughs> so anyway, my retort was that, but, um, but yeah, I've been, I've been hanging out down there forever, you know, and, and it's kind of like the road, the itinerant road climber scene down there. And, um, and those people are in our wheelhouse with the podcasting, you know?
1: Anyway, if you want to meme us, just, just come up to us and let us know. Well, I'll, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll change into some, uh, into my nice sweatpants and, uh, Into your Adidas stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not that you are sponsored, but you want to be sponsored. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're yeah. matching I, our matching tracksuits. Yeah. Um, it would have been nice. Yeah, we so.
1: we do need run out tracksuits. That would be yeah. maybe maybe we can do that for next year. We should get stickers before we do that.
0: Yeah, I know. We do need to get some merch going. Um, um, we're over a hundred episodes into this thing. It's it's funny because it still feels like we just started it and like we're still figuring it out and like deciding what it's going to be. Yeah, totally. Uh, to me. And that was always like, well, let's just get it going and then we'll worry about like merchandise and stuff if people care later. And that, and we're still in that mode of like, well, at some point or another, we'll get, <laughs> you know. And we we're, do that thing too, that stoner thing where you're like, you think of something really funny and you're like, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> and then that's the last it, time it's yeah, ever it brought disappears. up ever again.
1: It's <laughs> so. Well, I was but, actually um, I was actually kind of you you seem to relish in the in being memed more than I did. At first I was I was a little unnerved by the the um just being photographed like that in a way that I wasn't prepared for. Um and it kind of made me wanna return to my um my hiding hole here in Newcastle where I don't go out. Um but but I you know, you, you kind of changed my opinion and, and um I, I'm now I'm now on board. You can meme
0: me well, all you want it's 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 a um i mean it's not just a meme right because it 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 you know you could take a picture of me from the internet and then make fun of me right. easily enough which is mostly what memers do the the paparazzi element is is like this whole curve which yeah. i think made made it worth talking about i mean i've been slandered on memes before you know slandered made fun of i mean it I, nothing's ever bothered me that much but the other thing is personality wise like you and i you're way more reclusive than I am. Yeah, Um, for sure. You know, I've, I've played in bands. So I've been in front of people I've done. And also, you know, the Enorma cast has been much more public for much longer than you have on the run out. So Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you've been able to sit behind layers of, um, of defense when you were like at the magazine and as a writer and stuff. Right. um, More so than I am. So I just feel like it's fair game. I mean, I a hundred percent believe that. Like if if we're gonna poke fun at people or at institutions or at things, which is what we do, yeah, then you it's that whole like dish it out, you better take it kind of thing. Yeah, and, totally. And um you know, and I've I've mentioned too, like we there's certain climbers which we will make fun of by name and it, it's not a lot. Like we're not gonna pick out some newbie climber named Greg whatever and then just like call him out for being a dumbass on the show. Mm-hmm and even a lot of the people that we do call for being a dumbass we sort of keep their name you know like okay you could find out who it was but but it's it's a little bit layered but the people we make fun of the the um you know the the Honold level and Messner and all these it's because i mean we have a ton of respect for what they've done and you know and they're above it all and i think public figures to a certain extent kind of need the foil i mean it's it's an age old literary thing as well and it's like yeah and I, you know i can i definitely can count alex among our friends you know he's we're 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 closer than just a professional you know relationship And, and he doesn't care i mean he probably doesn't hear most of it but he doesn't care yeah you know so yeah so so i believe like there's a status thing to actually being made fun of as well that um you can either get mad at or you can kind of revel in like hey i've i've reached this level where people can you know take shots at me. I don't mind. I, I can take it.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, um, I, I always, uh, thought of city market as my safe space, but yeah. now <laughs>
0: <laughs> look, dude, that city market is combat zone most of the time. <laughs> and anybody who's visited Moab at any, anything, but maybe the dead of winter city market, you got to be prepared for whatever happens. So it's almost great that it happened there. Cause yeah. it's like a fucking free for all on that, in that city market yeah. for sure. And anyone who lives in Moab, even for a short time, like come to understand, like you go to that place on a Saturday morning during the season, you're, you know, you're, you're ready to go.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this, it's just all these things coming together for me too. being in the public in a way that I'm not accustomed to, um, being the star of the entire real rock tour,
0: you know, like this is <laughs> yeah, just that what was I right. can That's expect. N- All right. I didn't think about that. You've you've been doing that, and and actually, you were down in the desert um, a lot this last week, and uh, yeah, and and your your film was shown here at Five Point, but um, a lot of special things happen around that. So why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So I was out. Uh, I, t- I took two trips to the creek in the last week, um, and one of them
0: was to which is um, like a one thousand percent increase. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a, I, I've I've reached peak Creek for the year already. And it's only <laughs> April. Um, yeah. So I was down there last week, um, with my friends, uh, from the film, uh, Tim Bruns and a Palestinian climber, uh, Fetis Abu Ghosh, who, um, got to come to the U S uh, on behalf of five point film festival, they went above and beyond to secure a visa for him. um, Tracy Wilson, who our, our friend here from Carbondale, um, and w- who works at five point was really instrumental in, in, uh, channeling Julie Kennedy, who is the the five point founder and, and her, her mentality is just never take no for an answer. And so she, you know, I think she contacted Hickenlooper, our Senator here and, and, um, got some letters of recommendation and, um, and and secured a visa for for Fadis uh, to come. And there, some of just to put into context, a bunch of other Palestinian climbers tried to apply for expedited visas, but they were denied um, for one, unclear reasons, actually. But anyway, F- Fadis was lucky. He's the tango dancer from the film, if you if you recall that, and um, or if you've seen the film. And so yeah, it was it was pretty special to to take this guy who you know grew up in... he's he's literally lives in a refugee camp just outside of Jerusalem. And, you know, if you imagine what life might be like for someone like him, where he can't go 10 miles on a road without going through a checkpoint to be able to drive from Denver, where he flew in all the way out to, you know, Indian Creek and, and just see this incredible expanse of openness and, you know, Western landscape where there's a, there's a freedom to it. And I don't know. I, I, I it's just such a special place in general, but I, I think it's especially special for someone like that to, to get to see that.
0: Yeah. We certainly take it for granted. Just the fact that it's, I mean, he even mentioned it, how they had just been driving for the longest. He couldn't, I mean, he'd never in his life had sort of driven that far nonstop ever yeah. in his life. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it was, yeah, he, he was remarking on it and then, you know, I mean, of all the ups and downs with Indian Creek of the last, whatever, few decades, it's it's still one of the great last sort of free areas, even with a couple campgrounds, you know, coming into existence in the last 10 years. But it's still a place you can go and just not run into any authority whatsoever. Yeah, there are a couple rangers out there, but they're like two rangers for like whatever, 10,000 square miles of, of territory to, to to run down. So it's definitely a climber zone and and you can kind of do whatever you want and so yeah it's a pretty special place to have him come plus it's legendary i mean the guy eats and breathes climbing media that he can get his hands on and so certainly indian creek is you know it's a worldwide legend
1: yeah so we we started at the super crack buttress and you know, got him up to speed with crack climbing and, um, he did really well for his first day of crack climbing ever. Um, and then the next day we went up the South six shooter, which is kind of a super easy summit to get to. And, um, but just spectacular, you know, three hundred and sixty views of, you know, for thousands of miles and, and just incredible exposure. And so he was just, his mind was just blown basically. So it was super cool to, to be able to share yeah, to share that with him and just see see this thing that you know you you've been going out there for as you just said since ninety one and you know I've been going out there for uh, you know twenty years but not certainly not as much as you but um, it's something you take for granted you know it's just part of the you know the kind of climbing experience you kind of think of it in your backyard you know living out here in Western Colorado so um, to just see that through fresh eyes was was pretty special.
0: Yeah, and it's it's so necessary, you know. Like we talk a lot on here and other formats about like keeping the psych up after so many years and and you have to reevaluate because I mean, I would never like I wouldn't climb Six Shooter again except for love or money, you know. Right. And um there's just so many other things that I would do yeah. and it's, you know, it's like the probably one of the easiest, if not the easiest tower out there and mm-hmm. you know, so all that's like beneath me or whatever, but yeah. So you just kind of think about like, Oh, it, and, and it also throws you back to how special those things were when you first discovered them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was a tower collector long before I was like much of an Indian Creek climber, mm-hmm. um, and, and have moved away from those. I don't know the last one I did a few years ago, but, um, yeah, so it's kind of, it's, you need those perspective, those realizations once in a while to be like, Oh yeah, this is super special. And, uh, and I'm, grumpy about it and I should stop being grumpy about, you know, whatever the people here, whatever happens to be. So
1: yeah, totally. I, um, that's something I kind of wanted to talk about too, because, um, the second trip that I took and, and maybe we could talk about this because, um, as listeners may know from us referencing this over the years, we, uh, we both helped Steph Davis out with her crack clinic, which happens twice a year. Um, and so we go out and, and, you know, basically help introduce and teach people to crack techniques and, you know, anchor building skills and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it is, there's a, a parallel there. You know, I think there's something especially poignant about, you know, this kid from a refugee camp in Palestine coming out to the Creek, but there's a similar level of just the people that who are new to climbing that we meet at this crack clinic who, um, kind of give us that vicarious, uh, you know, perspective of seeing climbing through fresh eyes where, you know, the psych is high and you're everything you're on that learning curve and everything's new and, and exciting. Um, so yeah, I, I thought this group that we had, um, this week, Chris was, was a, was a cool group that, um, had a lot of elements of, of that, um, within the group.
0: Yeah, it was a broad range of of abilities, which it's something we kind of always measure in our heads because it it dictates sort of where we go, what we do, um, who needs what, what gets personalized. So it's you know it's not something where we're like oh we're judging oh those 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 people aren't very good and this person's really really good and. Um, it's just more of a logistic thing to make sure everybody gets what they need or what they wanted or what they came for. And I thought this one was pretty broad, as broad as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most experienced person, because we get all experience levels. They're not they're not beginner climbers. They're just new to crack climbing, generally mm-hmm. all the way down to um, yeah, people for whom first moves off the ground were super difficult um, and almost insurmountable in some cases. So it was it was a big group, which is always. Also challenging from a guiding standpoint, as as anybody who's taught anything knows. Um, So, but yeah,
1: yeah, I I wanted to um share a story about one of the individuals in that group who um mm-hmm. she was much you know heavier and larger than the other people, and that was something that she kind of struggled with, I think. And you know, she's in a good place because she's been you know eating healthy and and climbing a lot and working with a trainer and losing weight and stuff. But her weight is certainly part of her you know, identity and experience level. And it just kind of, on the first day, she was like super, super frustrated with um, not being able to get up basically anything um, that we put her on. And um, and then by the next day, you know, she got to the top of, of this one crack a, a few times and she mock led it and stuff like that and just felt really accomplished and good about herself. But on that first day, she was having this this experience that I, I just wanted to highlight, which is this sense of being so frustrated that you're not good enough as a free climber, that you can't do the moves and you can't, you feel like you suck and you feel like it's, you know, all a reflection of your strength or weight or fitness level or something like that. And it's something that I think people really, like literally at every level of climbing, go through to some degree or another. You know, for someone like her, it was, you know, that's all that she sees in climbing because that's such a big part of her experience at this point. But I don't think that she has that perspective that this is some, you know, let's say one day she gets to like the five twelve level or something like that. She's still going to have that. That's, you know, when, when you get to 12 a, you feel good about yourself, but then you try a 12 B and then, you know, you're like, fuck, I suck. I should be fitter. (laughs) I should be stronger. I should be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, So it's kind of this universal thing that I think we
0: have in climbing. And it also goes back to that perspective thing that I was just talking about. It's like you know she's new to it, and there's successes that she's had in in other formats. but this crack climbing thing is really unique, and it's really Indian creek's kind of rough i mean it's we all people who climb there understand that it's like there's literally several maybe five or six five eights that I know of mm-hmm. in the entire. Indian Creek, which is miles and miles and miles of walls. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe there's a five, seven somewhere. Um, I don't think it goes any lower than that. And so it's like, it's a, it's a hard place to, to go climbing. And we have every group. We have a lot of frustration because mm-hmm. um, people walk in with a certain sense of what they should be climbing and what they were climbing in the gym. And they have this number in their head and every guide deals with this, 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 number thing that people come with and that's what they want to do for the day because that's what they do in the gym or anything else. And, um, yeah, the expectations are just really tricky for, for a place like Indian Creek.
1: Yeah. I hadn't thought about this until you just said that, but she, she did mention, you know, what her expectations were, which were totally born of the, you know, clearly soft and, you know, fluffy grades in her, her gym that she goes to. Um, and that, I think gyms are kind of notorious for having, you know, really soft grades or just grades that don't even make sense. Um, and I think that probably does add to that sense of expectation for when you go outside and you, you know, you think you should be climbing a certain level because you can do that in the gym, but you don't, you know, out, outside, right. It's certainly in a place like the creek.
0: It, the grades are so tricky because, you know, we, we live by them, but we, we, at the same time paradoxically say they don't matter and then we turn around and they do matter and but like looking at them as as not this black and white thing but this indicator and and not letting that external subjective thing decide who you are as a climber and uh it it, i mean like i said another another show from now we're going to be talking about grades again and and like i'm going to be bitching about how people don't talk about really what they climbed and what the real grades are right, so right. yeah well, it's kind of it's kind of a mess when you just even get into talking about grades
1: yeah grades are a mess they're confusing to people they um, i think they lead to false expectations um so it's important to just highlight that and, and manage that if, if this um if this conversation applies to you um but I, I i just also want to reiterate this point of which i think is a point that you can't really understand unless you're an experienced climber and you've been through highs and lows in your own climbing life, but just how similar the, the core experience of climbing is no matter what your free climbing level is. That's something that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't understand. They think that there's some kind of, I don't know, uh, like enlightened freedom or perspective or something that comes with, you know, achieving that next hardest grade or, or being, being able to call yourself a you know five eleven climber, five ten trad climber, whatever it is that you have in your mind is like this, because everyone has that. Like everyone has that level that they think is going to be this place of happiness and fulfillment in their life. Um But in my experience, it's just more of the same. It's just harder. You know, it's like it. <laughs> you you still feel like you still have this sense that you carry with you that you're not good enough that you kind of suck and that you could be doing better it's this this sense that you're if only you had made you know different choices in your life or you had been a little bit more disciplined here or there that you'd be able to do things that you currently can't do and so it's this it's this like internalized sense of failure that you constantly carry and that's part of this climbing experience and i think it happens whether you're struggling to do like a five, eight at the Creek or, you know, 514, you know, whatever. I don't hear people talk about that enough.
0: Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I just flash back to like coming up on four years now that I've been working on my crack project in the desert. It's the same. Mm-hmm. Like I have gone out there and failed. I've made plans that I didn't follow through with to try to do it. So I failed before I even left the house. <laughs> you know, cause I had a training plan that I didn't follow. And I had, you know, so it's, and, and I do, and I gave up, you know, I, I've, get, I've given up, I've started again and given up again. Um, and I am currently in a gray area of giving up. Maybe, you know, I have the summer now to think about it cause it's out of season. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's definitely been an emotional roller coaster of like, well, fuck it. I don't need to do that. It's a waste of my time to like, waking up, literally waking up at night and like my first thought is, well, maybe I should go do it. Like that's literally happened to me. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, so it's sort of an emotional roller coaster. I mean, it's, I guess, easier for me having having accomplished goals that I set for myself and new climbers sometimes, you know, this is like the first roadblock and, and so it's they don't have an experience of having succeeded before to, to kind of fall back on. I think it's probably like the difference of experience with beginners but um but yeah I guess it's just a warning to everybody it doesn't go away. <laughs> well, you know, I mean I Your misery will continue at all levels of climbing. That's what we're here to tell yeah. you at the run out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> It is kind of a lifelong suffer fest, but it, but I think the the key insight is to not beat yourself up during that process like um Ugh. I mean that that Like literally, so this, this woman at one point was kind of brought to tears of kind of her inability to, you know, to climb this thing. And the, literally the thing that came to mind was I thought about young Emily Harrington when she was a teenager in rifle and, um, literally being brought to tears that she couldn't climb something, you know, and look at her now. And I don't know, it's just. I don't think that we need to be so hard on ourselves. Um, I don't know what the fine line is between like recognizing what you're, where you are and having an honest appraisal of your climbing ability, having that desire and like need to get better, but not like going so far as to like put yourself down, you know, and like feel like you just suck at climbing so bad that you're a worthless human, you know, like you don't need to add that those extra steps to it to, in order to have the motivation to like keep going with climbing, and I, th- I think it—I don't know—it's just um, you see what I'm getting at. It's like
0: yeah, totally. Yeah, and this woman is very accomplished on uh, many other things in life. Yeah, you know, because one of the things is we get to know these people, and it's just like yeah, what you know. So yeah, it's 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 strange that all of a sudden this bucket of of climbing supersedes like all of these other accomplishments in your life all of a sudden. Right. But I mean, I'll say this too, like the, it's why it's so attractive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you didn't just lose a game. You didn't just like, you know, not block that goal. It it, it goes so deep into your psyche. It's why we do it. And, and to be honest with you, like something like this, if it, if it makes you feel, um, you know, other emotions besides joy, that's, I mean, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, as long as you can move beyond it, you know, after the moment. And, and I think, I think, you know, this situation she did, yeah, she did move beyond it after the moment and has some, some successes later on. For sure. Um But I mean, to feel terrible is okay. As long as you move on to feel scared, to feel all these things, because otherwise it's, you know, it's not what it is. Climbing is, is for that as well.
1: You can walk away from, you know, from that route and that experience and, um, you know, and then put a smile on your face and, and go back the next day and keep, keep trying at it.
0: You know how many sets of draws I left out over the winter, Andrew, uh, <laughs> on unfinished yeah, projects. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't think you even have, you own a single draw in your pack right now because no, I had all... to buy
0: another pack. I had to buy another set over the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I was like, well, those are there and those are there and those are there. So last year was like the year of punting off of projects. And <laughs> yeah. There's ice covered draws still. Yeah. Um, there, there's one place I'm not gonna be able to get them until July so um, <laughs> anyway yeah
1: <laughs> anyway keep your heads up out there and um, I am feeling after two weeks or two uh, trips to the creek this week I'm feeling uplifted and positive about the sport and um, and just being able to to see to see the see climbing through these like you know these individuals eyes it's it's, it's I don't know I feel good right
0: now or you did right up until that meme popped up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Christian Beckwith is a writer, podcaster and co-founder of Alpinist Magazine and the Teton Climbers Coalition. His latest project is 90-Pound Rucksack, a historical podcast exploring the dawn of outdoor recreation in America through the story of the 10th Mountain Division.
2: This is way harder than editing a magazine. But it's also it's super cool. I mean, I'm way into the story, and um, it's just been a... And, an honor really to be able to plunge into this the way that that I have so are you just, doing all that do you have a team uh what do i have i've got um a fellow who helps with marketing and so we're up to 10 um followers on facebook which is good um <laughs> uh, i've got a uh an audio engineer yep feels like more than just a mic and a and a computer at this point mm-hmm. just a lot of a lot of books a lot of interviews and then uh yeah a couple of weeks ago i went out to fort drum out in new york and gave a a presentation on the 10th mountain division to the 10th mountain division along with the 18th airborne corps which is america's contingency corps so they're the break glass you know in case of emergency and they've um they've lost their history all of the divisions in the army ended up getting sidetracked by the war on terror and so they lost right. their connection to their identities and their, um, their historical missions. And so this definitely opened up a lot of cool opportunities, but it's a fucking ton of work. It's like 12 hours a day. I stopped, I stopped exercising for about a couple of times. I've done it for like four weeks in a row and it's just not <laughs> worth it. It's not worth it.
1: <laughs> Before we get into your podcast, uh, your, uh, you know, slowly making yourself turn into a type 2 diabetic without exercise and <laughs> destroying your psych and will to live and so forth. I thought it'd be fun to just kind of riff on the uh, death or impending death of print mag- uh, media Aww. in the climbing world Such with you. Since a um, place in
2: my heart for it.
1: Well, you're, uh, you know, you had a perch at Alpinist, and we're kind of responsible for the aesthetic and style and tone of the magazine and setting it off in, in the right direction before Katie took over. And I'm not sure how long were you there at the Alpinist.
2: When did we start that? 2001, and then um, the economic crash of 08, 07, 08, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was our denouement. So I got about six or seven good years out of it. Yeah. Was, I mean, what an opportunity!
1: Those um those years of the alpinist are some of my favorite uh, years, and some of my favorite stories came out of that era. I mean, I still revisit the uh, Yuji Hiriyama piece on trying to on-site the Salathe, and I've, I just find find that to be one of the more inspiring pieces of climbing writing I've ever read. So, so yeah, I don't know if I've ever said that to you, but hats off on on your career at the alpinist, and um, good job on on creating what I thought was a pretty cool product.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it was yeah. just, it was serendipity. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I started my first mag here in like 94, here being the Tetons. When I was getting going, I I didn't know shit from Shinola. And I ended up moving here because I'd read Paul Gagné's article in Rock and Ice, two-part article on alpine climbing in the Tetons, alpine rock climbing in the Tetons. And I was like, alpine, what's that? That sounds so cool. I was down at Waco Tanks bouldering for the winter, and uh, I was like, "I got to go up and check that out." Rolled into town, hitchhiked up from, I think from yeah from El Paso, and um, I'd learned to climb in Wales, and they had like this amazing tradition of climbing mentorship and these these clubs, and everybody would go out on these weekends. And he'd, I ended up on my first multi-pitch climb, Milestone Buttress, I think it's called in Wales with like an astrophysicist and this woman who's all I remember is her dad was from Poland and her mom was from Madagascar. And neither one of us had any idea what we were doing. And uh that whole tradition just impressed me with its um its ties to the history of the place. And I moved to the Tetons, you know, I got here and I looked around for people to go climbing with. I looked around for a, a scene you know a scene a hub and there was nothing and so I ended up starting this thing called the wayward mountaineers and we published our first magazine the mountain yodel and when I was getting that going um I went through the phone book and found Yvonne Chouinard Yvonne a house here and uh I called him up said Mr. Chouinard I'm a big fan I'd love to um talk to you I got this idea he's like well oh, come on over for dinner so I went up and <clears throat> sat down with him told him what I wanted to do, you know, with this magazine. he's like, oh, yeah, it's way too much work. Don't do that. Just staple a bunch of pages together and hand them out to your friends. You know, it's way too much work. And I was like, oh, man, my hero just told me not to start, <laughs> not to start something. Are you kidding? So I ended up starting it and I left a copy on his, um, on his porch one time and H. Adams Carter, who had edited the American Alpine Journal for 36 years and made it into the, you know, the the Journal of Record for Mountaineering, had just passed away. And um, Elon threw my name in the hat, which is insane because I didn't know anything about anything. And the American Alpine Club actually hired me <laughs> to run the AAJ, which was just, I look back at that and I can't believe that they would you know, take that sort of chance on a, such a, uh, I was so green. I was so wet behind the ears. And, um, I ended up, uh, doing that for like six years until they fired my ass because I'd gotten <laughs> sideways with the, um, uh, there was an executive director and a, uh, uh, the president of the board. There was like a contingent of folks. They called them the California mafia on the board that thought the, um, the president at the time was kind of a social climber. He was like a lawyer. He wanted to be part of the, you know, the whatever the administration in DC was at that time. And so there were a bunch of folks that were agitating for um him to step aside and because <laughs> I was still such a punk ass kid, I was like I joined them and said, and if you don't I'll I'll not publish the journal until until you two stepped out. And then they fired me. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I, I remember I came home from uh that meeting and I just I had sat with Michael Kennedy at the bar you know all night being like, Oh fuck, what just happened, man? And I my they just fired my ass. And I came home after we went ice climbing for a bit, came home and I'm standing in my uh in my in my house. I get a call and this woman says, This is Diane, have you um gotten the letter yet? And I said, What letter? And there was a knock on the door. <clears throat> I opened the door. A FedEx guy hands me an envelope. I'm still on the phone. I was like, well, I just got this, this envelope. She said, open it. So I opened it and it's on like, you know, thousand pound stock paper. And it's a letter from Mark Ewing, who was one of the founders of Red Hat. So he tagged like two billion during the tech, the tech boom. And it said, I'm interested in starting the National Geographic of Alpine Climbing. Would you be interested in in working with me on that, and I said, "Well, um, your timing is impeccable, <laughs> yeah, I'd be really interested and within a week, i was on a I was on that plane to Chicago, and we got it going, and it just all fell into place like that, and it was free reign, and I had all this you know with the journal, it's such an incredible book, but it's six by nine, so it's it's really there's only so much you can do within those." within those parameters. And the stories that I was seeing from all over the world were so cool. You know, just one example, the Russians and like the system that they grew up in, in the former Soviet Union, which facilitated some of the most remarkable ascents in climbing history within a system that was completely isolated and insulated from the rest of the world blew my mind. And so I started going over to Kyrgyzstan on these expeditions, and I got to know all these guys. And, uh, you know, with when Alpinist came, there was a chance to build these beautiful articles about these climbers who were doing these climbs. And they would only, they would appear like a blip. I think it was in 81, they went on their first, uh, they got out of the Soviet Union, got their first expedition to, I want to say Everest, and punched out a new route that was just gobsmacking. And then they went home and the iron curtain shut again. And nobody heard anything <laughs> else from them. So those were the kind of articles that were just so fun to do with Alpenison. And then also just get into the grid of it. You know, have fun, laugh. You can be bawdy. I don't think you can do that anymore. But we could have, you know, a, a ri- ribald <laughs> sense of humor and, you know, nobody sued us and nobody flamed us or anything like that. It was a very different a very different time and just um you know thanks to mark we had the latitude to do this you know gorgeous magazine with only full page ads and we could work with these climbers from all over the world in putting together something that really felt like a true celebration of the climbing lifestyle and i'll just always look back at that as you know w- what an opportunity opportunity of a lifetime it was incredible bodiness continues just says so it know. it's so out there where do you, where yeah, do you yeah. find it <laughs> The dark. It's making a come back. well it's 70 I just laugh because exactly. I'm currently
0: editing a um what is actually an extremely body episode for the normal cast. I just literally was editing it before I got on this and laughing my
2: ass off and wondering if we'll get in trouble. But we won't. I know we won't. That's good. <laughs> and then the whole media landscape has just changed so much since I mean when you know after alpinist I started this social media website for adventure athletes and um outer local and it was what do we call it um sports that can kill you and the people who love them and so we just followed all those you know the ski mountaineering and the base jumping and the wingsuiting and the and the climbing and the you know all the great all the great things that we love to do but social just felt so um Man, it was like a monster. You had to feed it all the time, and it was ravenous, and it was never sated. It just always required more, and it just sucked the soul right out of me. I didn't want to have anything else to do with it. And
0: and Now you're back.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I know. I had to get back on fucking Facebook. Oh, my God. What a horrible hole. (laughs) You just get sucked into that. There's so many things I'd rather be doing. But yeah, I mean, how do you get the word out?
1: Well, maybe that's a good segue into uh, hearing about your new podcast that you're working on um, about history, climbing history. and um, But before we get there, I just, I just feel uh, the urge to point out um, a thread that I picked out from what you were just saying there, Christian, about trying to get people to kind of pay attention and listen and understand what it is you're doing and the projects you're describing this podcast, which you are about to talk about the, the alpinist um, you know, these like kind of deep stories from the climbing world that you're, you've kind of made a career of, of um, excavating and bringing to the surface for all of us. It's a heavy lift uh, for you in terms of work and so forth, but it's also a a heavy lift in terms of the so-called attention span of, of climbers out there. And there's always this concern that, people might not be paying attention to what it is that you're doing, or certainly the, the sense is that the payoff is not always worth it, um, to do that kind of work and to, to kind of get the number of eyeballs or, or ear holes of uh, tuning into what it is that you're doing. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but, um, you know, it's a kind of a lonely road and, uh, I, I kind of, um, something about that. Uh, artistic pursuit resonates with me. And um, I don't know, I just feel like commiserating with you on that a little bit.
2: <laughs> Thank you. We could pull John Middendorf into this as well. Have you been reading his <laughs> um, mechanical advantage?
1: Exactly. His substack is, um, is a treasure trove of, of climbing esoterica.
2: The way he goes down those rabbit holes is amazing. And mm-hmm. he's uncovering these things that, you know, he'll take all the popular myths, and this is what I've been finding with the tenth as well the deeper you go and the closer you get to the source material and the that those first person accounts the more you discover that what that history is this uh this process of telling stories and the uh, um that is so complicated because some of the people that tell the stories are really good at the storytelling but they're not necessarily what is it? They don't have the, the OCD personality <laughs> disorder that allows them to go all the way back to that source. So they're picking up on stories that have already been told and they're just telling them again. And so that, and like the whole, so this podcast that I'm doing on the 10th mountain division is case in point because the story is that the 10th mountain division was the U S army's ski troops. And it was founded, started by this fellow called named Charles Minot Dole. And he was the in 1938, he started the national ski patrol system. And in 1939, the Soviet Union invaded Finland. And for four months, the Finns held off the lumbering Soviet forces, you know, in their, in their tanks, um, on, on a global stage. So the entire world was watching this. And they did so by going up in cross country skis and, um, breaking up these these lumbering um caravans of tanks into what they called Mādi, which is a measure of firewood. And then they would go in and pick people off, you know, what you know, just bit by bit. And they destroyed I mean they destroyed Nikola uh Khrushchev in nineteen fifty two said that the Soviet Union lost two million men in that endeavor over the course of four months. And there was nothing else going on in the war because it was wintertime. So all the journalists were up there um, observing it and reporting back on it. And that came to America in the newsreels that were in all the movie theaters where people were going to get their entertainment. So everybody was watching the Finns do this. And Minnie Dole and his mates, who are you know all skiers from the East, and skiing had really just started taking off in that last decade. They said, well, what happens if Germany invades... North America through Canada and then comes down through the Champlain Valley. Who's going to defend the borders? And um, the answer was nobody because the U.S. Army was a flatland operation. We hadn't updated our cold weather manual since 1914. There was nothing there. We trained in places like Georgia and the Philippines. And so we had no mountain experience whatsoever. And we were about to enter into a war with – with Germany, which had invaded, invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. And they had enormous experience in the mountains, among other places, because of World War I. And so they had a legacy of mountain troops. They had a legacy of mountain warfare. So did the Italians, so did the French, so did the, the Austrians, and the US had nothing. We had 200,000 soldiers in 1939 and eight divisions. And by the end of the war, we had 8.5 million soldiers, and I think 96 divisions. And to to ramp up like that required the creation of all these new units. And the popular story is Minnie Dole sitting there in a, an inn in Vermont in February of 1940 with uh, three other skiers, two of whom are Olympians, Alec Bright and uh, Bob Livermore, as well as Roger Langley, who was the head of the... National Ski Association, they're talking about this and they're like, oh shit, how are we going to defend our borders? And so they said, well, why don't we reach out to the War Department and see if we can offer our help? But everybody's offering their help. I mean, every lunatic in America who has a patriotic molecule in their in their body is reaching out to the War Department with their suggestions. I mean, one of the responses that they got was, hell, we got guys who are approaching us with ways that we can shoot around corners. I mean, everybody is hitting us with these ideas, and we got to go from those eight divisions and the 200,000 soldiers that we had in 39 to, you know, in 1941, they came up with a war plan to beat Nazi Germany, and they, they estimated we would need 215 divisions and 8.8 million soldiers by 1943. And so this came out in 41, so that's in two years to ramp up like that. And, you know, if you're, how are you going to do that? They're proposing a specialized unit that has no precedent, that has no training manuals, that has no equipment, because all of the equipment for mountain troops, for mountaineers, was made in Germany and Austria, and they were probably not going to be sending us any shipments of pitons or ice axes or crampons because we were in a war with them. And so um, the whole story of this is that, you know, it was... Minnie Dole and the National Ski Patrol System that started the 10th Mountain Division, which has an enormous amount of validity to it because Minnie Dole was indefatigable. He had huge connections. He was reaching out to General Marshall and Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of War. General Marshall was the Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, and he wore them down. I mean, pure tenacity. It It truly was incredible. And he had a network of um, between three and 4,000 National Ski Patrol people that he could call on to be part of a, a mountain division. And so, this is the story that he told himself in real time. In real time being, I could pick up a copy of the American Ski Annual, which I've got right here. But he was writing articles about this as he rolled. The problem for me was, you know, I'd been writing this book on the history of um, Teton climbing, and I got to the war, and Teton climbing came to a screeching halt, because, and I was like, well, what happened? And everybody went into the 10th Mountain Division. So then I fell down the rabbit hole of the 10th Mountain Division, and in order to start my research, I just did what I'd been doing all along in in my research up to that point, which is reading the American Alpine Journal. And in 1946, there was an AAJ special war edition that had articles by all the American climbers, and particularly the American Alpine Club members, about their contributions to the war. And they weren't talking about the skiers. They weren't talking about skiing. They were talking about climbing. That's where I started. And so then, when I turned to all the civilian histories, and everybody's talking about Minnie Dole, and the National Ski Patrol system i was like "Ooh, where are the climbers i I know the climbers did all the development of the of the war manuals they did all the development of the gear and the clothing they they did all the you know the um they were the instructors at camp hale and prior to camp hale and Fort Lewis, and really importantly, the signature action of the 10th Mountain Division when they got to Italy was the ascent of River Ridge, which was an ascent. Like, they didn't use skis when they got to Italy to break the Gothic Line, which in 1945 is the great contribution of the 10th Mountain Division to the war effort. It precipitated the, you know, Germany's surrender of Italy. And that wasn't there. And I think in part, it's because at the time, there were 2 million skiers in the country, there were 500 technical climbers. I counted them. I went through all of the memberships of all the various organizations in the United States: so the American Alpine Club, Appalachian Mountain Club, Sierra um, the Sierra Club, the uh, the Mountaineers, Mazamas. And then you add in like the Yale Mountaineering Club and the Dartmouth Mountaineering Club and the Harvard Mountaineering Club. And so there are a bunch of these smaller clubs. Twelve thousand folks are parts of these organizations, but technical climbers in 1939, 1940. I think around 500, John Middendorf thinks a 1,000. So, I don't know. 750. Let's call it 750. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that story of the ski troops, it's sexy. I mean, remember before, you know, like Peter Mortimer and Nick Rosen started um, Sender Films, you know, watching climbing films was kind of like watching paint dry. It was painful. I mean, nobody could really capture... The movement and the, the elegance and the, and the you know the, the drama and the, the beauty of it because it have it's you seen unf- the Iger sanction, I have yeah that was pretty good, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but in 1939 1940 Hollywood got involved with the 10th Mountain Division because they were sexy and because skiing had two million folks you know so there was it was already on the radar screens as something that was cool, and so they just dove in and so they made a they made it. Um, who was this? It was MGM? I think made a film in 1943. It was on the. So there was that film that was in all the um, the movie theaters. There were the covers of, a, of Life magazine like two or three times. It was on the cover of Saturday Evening Post, and it was like this incredible feel good story in the midst of a war because skiing was sexy. Here were these rugged dudes who were out there doing these skiing things, which, you know, was all swoopy and fashionable and had come onto the national radar screen in the preceding decade in a way that was unprecedented. And what are you going to do in 1939, 1940 about climbing? I mean, <laughs> you know, that's just, it just was not very popular. It wasn't on the radar screens. But that was that part of that story, that unless you're willing to go to those original sources – you're just not going to get. And it's easier to just pick up on the story of Minnie Dole and put your little riff on it and call that good. But where it gets interesting is going down the rabbit hole. And I think, um, you know, Andrew, to your point, that's kind of the, the, the blessing and the curse of that. I don't know what it is. It's a disorder, but where you just can't help yourself, but you have to go so deep that you know the story inside and out, so that you can tell it, which is kind of where I feel like I am right now, and it's absolutely excruciating. It drives my wife counting insane. the
0: roles of of um, of mountain clubs all over the country. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> Something Christian? like that. Like, yeah, tallying yeah. up how many yeah. climbers existed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was so
2: curious because though I couldn't find that
0: information. Anyway. Well, no, I mean that's a it's a fascinating point because in, you know as a reflection of 2023 you know, in terms of the popularity of climbing, you know, this idea that there was that few people who could put a rope up, let's say, you know, technical climbing. And now what it looks like now. So, I mean, just that little point is pretty fascinating. And what what percentage of those people
2: ended up dealing, you know, in, with this 10th Mountain Division thing, you know, it had to have been a lot of them. What was so interesting about it was it the climbers who became involved in the tenth represented the institutional knowledge of climbing in the United States of America before the war, and so it was H. Adams Carter, who was my predecessor at the American Alpine Journal, and Bob Bates of um, the Harvard Five. They they were responsible for bringing American mountaineering up to. Um, the standards that it enjoyed before the war because of their expeditions to Alaska and then going off and taking those experiences and applying them to things like Nanda Devi and the Himalaya and Bob Bates was part of the 1938 um, K-2 expedition that saw Paul Petzl reach an altitude higher than anybody had ever gotten to before. So they were part of it. They were a critical component of it. You had folks like Bester Robinson and so, as you well know, you know, Bester Robinson was part of the Sierra the Sierra contingent of climbers who really um, did a remarkable job of homeschooling their way into an understanding of the dynamics of belaying and catch, you know, of like exactly how much rope would hold. They were the first ones to open up big wall climbing in America with some of their ascents in Yosemite, particularly on higher cathedral. You know, here in the Tetons, you had folks like Jack Durrance, who'd come over from Germany, because all the Germany had the skill sets. That's where all the hot climbers were coming from, because they had a legacy of mountaineering that was generations deep. And so they, you know, as did the Italians. So Tito Piazza had been soloing 5-7 in 1900, you know, I mean, they had a legacy of mountaineering. And so there was just a small number of Americans, but they all ended up in the 10th Mountain Division. So H. Adams Carter, Bob Bates, 1939, they're in Switzerland on a climbing junket, and they observed the maneuvers of the Swiss mountain troops, you know, and this is right when war was happening in Europe, so there was an urgency to it, and they said, you know what, we probably should look into having some mountain troops of our own, because this war thing is happening, it's happening. So they got home, and this is the part of the story that really doesn't get told. They began their own advocacy, they began agitating for a mountain troops as well. And the interesting thing about their efforts, number one, Ad was a Quaker. I mean, he was the most humble guy. I never met him. I wish I had. He sounded like I've met a bunch of the other, you know, the other Harvard Five guys like Bob Bates and Charlie Alliston, Brad Washburn. And uh, they were just so kind and and humble. And um, I think Ad was like that as well. But he didn't really talk about himself But they had all these connections because they were, they, you know, they were well educated. They'd come from, um, they'd come from affluence. They had this network that they activated. And among other people, they began to reach out to somebody named, um, Henry Stimson. And Henry Stimson had been Secretary of War under Taft. He'd been Secretary of State under Hoover. And in June, on June 20th, 1940, um, FDR appointed him Secretary of War. Kicking out the isolationist, Henry Woodring, who had been um, rebuffing Minnie Dole's efforts, at the very least, to start a mountain contingent. And so, Ad and Bob became part of this juggernaut of effort on behalf of American climbers. And really, the American Alpine Club was central to this, that um, succeeded in no small part, not because of their efforts, but because of what was happening on the world stage. And so, in 1940, Germany invaded Norway. And one of the things they wanted to do this is just a did you see this on netflix it's called narvik Mm -mm. it's a it's about the german invasion of um this town above the arctic circle called narvik that was a um the port town it was ice-free harbor 130 miles above the arctic circle that um this sweden had iron ore and they they what do you do you rail it you train train it you transport it to a port Narvik was the port and when Germany invaded to take that port so they could control iron ore which was a mission critical component of you know war material they brought a contingent of mountain troops and so they had 20 they had 2000 mountain troops and 2600 sailors on 10 destroyers they go into this harbor they seize the town and the Brits and the French among other allies this is before we got involved in the war we're like, oh shit, we need that iron ore. So they came in and they sank all the destroyers and they drove the, um, these mountain troops who now have these, these befuddled sailors to take care of as well up into the mountains around Narvik. And they, they held off, so this is fewer than 5,000 people, they held off more than 25,000 allied troops for four months. And the world watched this and the, um, you know, the folks in the the war department were like, oh shit, this mountain thing might actually be important. And the war department realizes that if we don't have, among other things, a very competent mountain unit, we could well find ourselves in situations in, for example, the Alps that we are simply not prepared to win and we have to be in this to win. And so they started um, reaching out to the American Alpine Club. I just finished up this uh, this episode. It was kind of fun. Um, Colonel H- Harry Twaddle, on December 20th, 1940, wrote to James Grafton Rogers, who was the president of the American Alpine Club at the time, and said, you know, M- my dear President Rogers, uh, we are interested in um, knowing about the following 21 items. Where can we purchase... This equipment, who are the local manufacturers? What is the price? And how many items of each unit would we need to outfit a mountain division? And it was all stuff like ropes and crampons and pitons and ice axes. None of which were made in the U S because we had no legacy of mountaineering whatsoever. I mean, that's not totally true, but we got all of our equipment from Germany (laughs) and Austria. And that was the oh shit moment. When the War Department realized that we don't need, you know, finished cross-country skiers defending the borders up, you know, around like Lake Champlain. We need a mountain unit that is capable and competent in technical terrain in summer, like, you know, in uh, in Narvik and winter. And that means mount, a mountain division. And so that's when they really began investing. And that's when America, American climbers really kicked in. So with no war manual whatsoever, there's no precedent in the United States. There's no war manual. There's no like book on how to fight a war in the mountains or how to even travel in the mountains. The only um, instructional handbook we had, and I'm looking around, I got it here right s- somewhere, is uh, Sir Geoffrey Winthrop Young's 1920 tome, Mountain Craft. That was the only real handbook there was to learn how to climb. H. Adams Carter identified, procured, and translated. The war manuals from the German, Austrian, Swiss, and French mountain troops in a year and a half. And that became the basis for the U.S. for, for the American army's war manual for the mountain division. Bob Bates went to the quartermaster corps, which is responsible for everything you need to fight a war and went to work on developing the ice axes, the crampons, the ropes, the pitons, and like a lot of the climbers from the Sierra Club like Bester Robinson, Raffy Bedane and Dick Leonard um they were part of this as well so all the all of America's climbers this this um you know our 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 what's the the brain trust of American climbing it was a remarkable moment in American history and one that's so hard for us to understand in the current environment but everybody wanted to be part of this war effort And so all of these American climbers who are really fucking smart, and they're really good, they all contributed to it in their own ways as best they could. And the result was gear and clothing and instruction manuals that not only helped this division know how to fight in mountains for the very first time in America's history, but then deployed to Italy in January of 1945, To break what's called the Gothic Line, which was Hitler's line in Italy's Apennine Mountains that he was using to divert allied forces that could otherwise be put to use in France, you know, to help hasten the end of the war. Because at this point, Americans come in and the tide has turned. But they couldn't get through the Gothic Line because it was mountainous. And Germany had used 15,000 slave laborers to build all these fortified encampments on top. And, you know, in mountain warfare... Where do you want to be? You don't want to be in the valley. You want to be on top looking down because you can shoot people <laughs> more easily. And if you're the guy running up the hill, it takes you at least, it, you have to have at least a five to one advantage it, to take a, you know, to t- take high ground. So when these guys got to Italy in 1945, they trained for like two and a half years, depending on where you date it. Um, three years in the mountains. And they'd become mountain athletes. And so they weren't just skiers. It wasn't just a ski troop. It was a mountain unit. And you guys know the deal, right? If you're running around in the mountains for hours every single day for years at a time, you get ripped and you get you get a tenacity and a psychological fortitude that is part and parcel of what we like to do in the mountains, right? You're always moving over technical terrain where if you fuck up, you die. And so you have this capacity not only for the physical fitness necessary to execute technical movements, but also that, that ability to compartmentalize your fear, discern real from perceived danger, and execute. And so that's what these guys had when they got to Italy, and they got to the Gothic line, and the U.S. Army's Fifth Army had tried to take it for 500 days without success – and the reason they couldn't take it, they were trying to take this thing called Mount Belvedere, which is really just sort of a rolling hill. It looks like something out of, you know, the Appalachia. Um But they'd taken it four times, but then counterattacks had driven them back all four times. But there was a, a escarpment adjacent to it, and it was seven kilometers long, and it was called Reaver Ridge. And on the western flanks, it was gentle enough that the Germans could drive up to resupply their troops who were plugged in on top. They're all entrenched on top. And, you know, they've got their their machine gun nests and everything else that they're using to to shoot us every time we try to break the Gothic line. But the eastern flanks, they don't really defend because they think they're too steep for a company to climb. And that's where the 10th Mountain Division broke through. And so under cover of darkness on February 18th, 19th, They went up four routes of ascent on River Ridge and they climbed through the night and they got up in a thick fog and they so surprised the Germans on top that the the Germans were coming walking toward um, the, the edge of the ridge as if they were just walking toward the barracks. They took them without a casualty. They took the entirety of River Ridge and that opened up the opportunity to break the Gothic line and then the 10th Mountain Division rolled over the German mountain troops like a fucking tsunami. They rolled so fast and so hard that the US Army's 5th Army, which was charged with resupplying them, couldn't keep up. And in the course of 114 days of combat, they achieved every single objective that they'd been assigned in a fraction of the time. But they incurred the most casualties of any unit serving in Italy. 13,124 of the the 10th Mountain Division, 13,124 soldiers went over. And of that, 969 were killed and 4,164 were wounded. It was absolutely fucking horrific. It was absolutely horrific. You read these stories and you're just like, oh my fucking God, there's no way I would I can't wrap my head around that shit. It's just too rugged. And um, I think the reason they were able to roll over them the way that they did was because of that training that made them into those formidable mountain athletes. They had that both mental and and physical capacity, mental and physical fitness. But then they also had the fellowship of the rope. And we know what that's like. They trained with their fellow soldiers for three years in the mountains. And they'd made a sense of peaks in, out of Camp Hale, you know, up to, thir- to 14,000 feet. They trained in conditions that included, there was something called the D-Series, D-Series, a divisional series in March of 1944, where 12,000 soldiers got ordered out into the mountains of, uh, around Camp Hale um, and were told to occupy these 13,000-foot summits and hold them and they went out and they got hit by eight feet of snow. Temps were down to 30 below. They had like, I think it was like, oh, God, 25% casual um, frostbite casualties. They just got so worked. But they had done this again and again and again. And they had gotten so fucking strong and so tough that by t- the time they got to Germany, they were able to roll. And when they trained, they trained with backpacks that weighed 90 pounds. The average weight of their backpacks was 90 pounds. So that's why I call my, my, the project I'm working on, which is both a book and a podcast, 90 pound rucksack. They were skiing with 90 pounds on their backs. Those skis are seven feet long, seven foot hickory skis with, um, they did have steel edges at that point with these little fucking leather boots. I mean, can you imagine skiing with 90 pounds on your back? In leather boots with seven foot hickory skis, it was insane. I mean, they were so, they were so tough. I am so blown away by what they did. And then after the war, so they precipitated the uh, the German surrender of Italy. After oh yeah, the-
0: let me interrupt real quick. Um, you know that that's part part of the interesting thing. I think you know that goes with the Camp Hale thing and the tenth and the Mountain Vision is the legacy after. Um, which again, we hear about the skiers a lot. You know, they they started all these ski resorts. You know, I I laughed when you said how many people went out on that 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 uh, exercise. You said twelve thousand. I was like, yeah, well, isn't that just like an average day in Summit County ski <laughs> resorts? But um, anyhow, <laughs> but uh, you know, they started all these ski resorts. We 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 continually hear about the skiing part of it. So tell us a little bit about the legacy of these climbers, sort of being. You, you you talk about them being turned into sort of these super ultra athletes and then I would suspect, you know, the ones who survived and then, you know, survived the things that go with an operation like that in the years following because I'm sure there was the normal amount of, of psychological damage that goes with things like that. But some were unleashed essentially onto the climbing world back here in the States and then also the equipment that they had developed and was now being manufactured. So tell us a little bit about that legacy
2: with the climbing versus the, you know, what we hear about with the skiing. Well, a lot of that gear became army surplus. So the amount of effort that went into developing the, the clothing and equipment was monumental. Um, 1942, Bob Bates, uh, Walter Wood, Albert Jackman, Walter Prager, Peter Gabriel, were part of an expedition that made the fourth ascent of Denali. As part of the war effort to test all this gear and clothing and after the war all this gear and clothing went into army surplus at that time when there was an economic boom and these guys are coming back and they didn't call it ptsd because they hadn't got there yet it was shell shock what's so interesting and what's so hard about this is like trying to track down information about these guys because they didn't want to talk about it they just wanted to they just wanted to go on with their lives but they all went into the mountains why do you go into the mountains because it makes you feel good right and so like before i did this i was running a, a non that looked at nature as a social determinant of health and we did a lot of research on the the health mental health benefits of time outside the reason these guys were going outside was because it saved their lives it saved it saved them from the demons that they picked up in italy but all that gear and clothing became part of the outdoor recreation boom that took place after the war um, here in the Tetons, Paul Petzelt, who had been part of the training at Camp Hale, had been in charge of mountain evacuation procedures, went on to start Knolls. That's taken hundreds of thousands of people, of Americans and people all over the world into the back country and taught them to be self-sufficient as climbers and just backcountry travelers. Here in the Tetons, I'm looking specifically at a number of folks, John Montaigne, Dick Emerson, Doug McLaren, Ernie Field, who came out of the 10th where they'd learned those mountain evacuation techniques, they learned how to climb, they came to Grand Teton National Park, they became climbing rangers, and they set up the first organized mountain rescue units, mountain rescue trainings in the park's history. That's the basis for the Jenny Lake Climbing Rangers. They're the elite force of um, rescuers that you never want to call, but you're psyched when you have to call them you're psyched that they're there and so those are just some of the ways that these guys have contributed to the dawn of outdoor rec in america and contributed directly to to climbing as well look at david brower coming out of the sierra club and in the, in the sierras went on to become one of the great environmentalists of the 20, 20th century i mean it's there weren't many of them but they swung way above their weight you mentioned like mountains as therapy for these guys coming home
0: from the war, which is an interesting parallel to um, Wade Davis's book "Into the Silence" with Mallory and those first attempts on on Everest. Those m- those guys, Mallory in particular, was were veterans of World War One, and and were definitely disappearing into the mountains as therapy. Um, and uh, I was wondering, though, you know, we think about the climbers as being very countercultural now, or at least our heroes from the 70s the the stone masters and such they you know they've been put on these these anti-establishment kind of pinnacles but i do see that that is a theme that kind of has run through at least modern climbing and i'll include the 40s and modern climbing comparing it to you know sort of the the alps in the 1800s um was did you get any sense that the training or the integration of these climbers and skiers into a military model ever you know produced pushback or they needed to train them in different ways or did these guys kind of fall in line with the the hard-headed, hardcore kind of way of
2: uh, the military makes a soldier? Oh my God. I mean, do we have another hour? (laughs) (laughs) No, the resistance that they faced (laughs) the entire time was unbelievable. I can't believe the division actually came together. It made no sense. We had no precedent for it. There was, um, we didn't have any, any legacy of mountaineering. We didn't have the gear and clothing. And General Leslie McNair, who was charged with building out the army, had to go from those eight divisions to 215 divisions in two years. And how do you go from eight to 215? You take the Henry Ford model. So you've got an assembly line. and Every part is exactly the same. That's how you get to volume. And so this idea of a specialized troop, there was just no way. I mean, there's just no way that you could do that. The fact that they came together while facing, and it was a civilian, all the talent was in the ranks. Like, you, you go to West Point, you don't learn how to climb or ski. So, everybody who knew how to climb and ski, they were just the soldiers. They were, <laughs> they were enlisted. And that created tension. There was tension within the War Department because these guys... um because there was so much confusion about this division. Like, how the hell do you do this? I, where do you start? There was a disconnect between um, the, the War Department and the unit, which meant that communication was scuttled the whole time. It was really confusing. And morale just went up and down and up and down throughout the history of the division until June 1944. They fucking shot him down. I mean, they shut down Camp Hale, where they trained all these years, and they shipped them to Camp Swift, Texas, which I haven't been to Camp Swift, Texas, but it doesn't sound fun. It's flat and hot. (laughs) Everything is trying to bite and sting you. And so, because they decided we didn't need a specialized unit, and these guys could just be part of the regular army. And then their morale went into the fucking toilet. I mean... Morale was such an enormous part of the story of the 10th Mountain Division. And what's so interesting is I was out at Fort Drum, which is the base for the 10th Mountain Division, a couple weeks ago, giving this presentation to the 18th Airborne Corps. And what blew me away was that because of the war on terror and because of all the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, the 10th Mountain Division, along with other divisions in the Army, they've really lost – Their sense of self they've really lost their that identity and they've lost that connection to to history to who they were and so at this moment in time the 10th mountain division is going through a process that has parallels with that very first process of trying to become a mountain unit but in terms of resistance oh my god i mean just so much resistance the entire time it's a miracle that that division actually came into being
1: there's an interesting psychological aspect I imagine as well, just in terms of coming out of this period of war and turning to something like outdoor recreation, which, you know, nevertheless has its uh, inherent risks involved. Um, But you would, you would imagine that after a period of, you know, war that people would want to just, you know, kind of chill by, uh, (laughs) by the lake or something, or just go fishing or something. But um, it seemed that outdoor sports kind of, got a toehold in, in America and kind of blossom from there. But is there any anything to say about just the psychology of Americans at that time?
2: Well, I mean, I was looking, going into this, I was looking a lot at the Depression and its impact on all of American life, including recreation. What blew me away was how how skiing had really exploded in the decade preceding the war. And so that was a function, again, this is all, everything in in life goes back to climbing. The reason that climbing exploded is because Sir Arnold Lunn, who was a British mountaineer, had determined that in order to successfully climb in the Alps, you needed two forms of skiing. One of them was to go up through the woods, and the second one was above treeline to get to the summit. And then you have to come back down. So he devised two races to help with those techniques, with with those skill sets. One's the downhill race, and the other one's slalom. So the downhill gets you down to tree line, and the slalom gets you back down to the valley floor. Hannes Schneider, who started, is the founder of the Arlberg technique, which came out of San Anton de Arlberg in the 20s. He had taught the Austrian German, uh, the Austrian mountain troops how to ski in the military way, which is, you know, you've got 90 pounds on your pack. You're not swooping, you know, you're not, you're not hucking, you're not launching, you're low to the ground so you don't fall over. Cause you also have a rifle on the back of your back, which throws your balance off and you can't pick yourself up if you, you know, some of these guys, the packs weighed as much as they did, but, um, both of those techniques. Uh, the the downhill and the solemn skiing and then the Arlberg technique, both of which were developed, you know, in part as mountaineering techniques converged when the 10th came to, together as part of that new ski style, which was not a civilian form of skiing style. It was much more of a mountaineering form of, of skiing that allowed you to travel effectively and efficiently over technical terrain without falling over and not being able to get up. So, you know, probably like you guys, I I just look at the world through the lens of climbing and that's my bias, but it also has allowed me to see the story from a perspective that I just didn't see out there. And that's why it's been so fun to tell it.
1: So Christian, why don't you just tell us um, where people can get your podcast? Um, It's called uh, 90 Pound Rucksack. And, um, and it's going to be a book as well. So why don't you just give us the plug on everything that you're working on?
2: Yeah, sure. So it's called 90 pound rucksack and it's the story of a fellow who came here to climb in 1939 named John McCown and he, John McCown was kind of, a he was out of the East. He was well-educated, got here. He was a falconer, f- learned to climb and it blew his mind. And next thing you know, he's climbing, he's climbing everything that he can came back here in 1940. I learned to climb, you know, went a, a level deeper. 1941, went to Waddington to try that, which at the time had only been climbed once in 1936 by Fritz Wiesner and Bill House. And so John McCown, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, ended up dropping out of law, law school and enlisting with the 10th Mountain Division, which is what all these guys did. And so 90-pound rucksack tells the story of the 10th Mountain Division from his perspective and his family's helping me out with all the his letters and files and things like that. And traces his rise through the ranks as he became, uh, the, at the end, he was a lieutenant colonel. Because he not only instructed all the troops, both at Camp Hale and also in Seneca Rocks, where he was teaching uh, many troops how to, the art of assault climbing. But then when he got to Italy, he's the one who put up the hardest route on Reaver Ridge, and it's called Multicerasicha. It had six pitches that he fixed on it, all under cover of darkness. So I followed the story of the 10th Mountain Division through his experiences, and then all the way back through to the Tetons and the founding of the Jenny Lake Rangers. And so I'm really looking at the story of the 10th and the dawn of outdoor recreation in America. And you can learn more at christianbeckwith.com. And how hard was that route? Like
0: D, 13D? 13. <laughs> what are we looking at? <laughs> there was a lot of shoulders. There was a lot of shoulders standing going on. <laughs> Old school.
1: That's 13D.
2: Old as school. As soon as you stand on somebody's shoulder, you're definitely in the I 13. With that um, rifle sticking you in all the wrong places. Yeah.
0: <laughs> as we all know, Climbers like us travel into the mountains for the journey and the sense of quietude that comes with high and wild places. But what if your casual free solo of a 10,000-foot face turned into a little bit of this? (laughs) On the latest bonus episode of The Runout, we sit down for another movie night and review the semi-thriller, semi-slasher B-movie from 2021, The Ledge, in all its idiotic glory. If you'd like to hear that, or all the previous bonus episodes, or contribute something to the run-out yourself like a final bit or a buddy spray, or maybe you just want to throw a little money at two dudes that make you chuckle and keep you informed of all the hot topics in climbing, go to patreon.com runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. That's patreon.com slash Podcast to support the runout. And frankly, if you don't, we will find you. And it's going to sound something like this.
1: Drop it! Drop it!
0: <laughs> On today's final bit, we feature the return of Vancouver climber Harvey Merritt and his project, Ponytails. This single, Barbie and Bam Bam, is the lead-off from a forthcoming album that Harvey wrote and recorded, quote, between smoke breaks and therapy sessions at Pacifica Treatment Center, a refuge for addiction recovery, during his 90-day stay. For more info on the upcoming full album, Patio Pacifica and Harvey and Ponytails, follow them at Ponytails Band on Instagram and listen at Ponytails on Spotify.
1: just finished another episode of the run out podcast i'm andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com
0: and i'm chris calouse and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true
1: we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no,
0: no. Patreon.com slash runout podcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at patreon slash runout podcast.com. No, dot com slash runout podcast. Something like that. Give us some money.